Up next is Safe Space. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations. Tonight, I'm going to be speaking with Beth Ehrlichman about her experience with two generations of mental illness in her family. And we're going to be focusing on self-care for those with mental illness in their family. I want to tell you a little bit about Beth. Beth Ehrlichman has her own business as a personal trainer in Massachusetts, where she also works part-time for MIT. She's been married for 31 years and is the mother of two grown children, Shira, who's 28, and Shai, who's 25. Beth is also a part-time student at the New England Conservatory, where she studies voice. Welcome to Safe Space, Beth. Thank you. So let's start out by, I want to hear a little bit more about your story, Beth. I know that you have mental illness from your mom that was undiagnosed and then fairly recently learned that your daughter also has bipolar disorder. So maybe we could start by just telling me a little bit about your story growing up with a mom who had mental illness. You know, I think it's kind of like as if I was in a storm. My mother's illness was um, something that was always there, actually. Her, while she was undiagnosed, I suspect, given that my daughter was recently diagnosed with bipolar disorder in 2006, that my mother had some kind of bipolar disorder. I, I just have vivid memories of her just really shutting down, becoming catatonic, you know, not taking medication, and then reaching the point where she had to be hospitalized to have ECT. And I just remember as a young child, just she would really disappear. There was no mother. She would be gone for a couple of weeks at the hospital, and then she would return kind of as if, you know, nothing had happened. And, of course, this is the generation of the 50s and 60s where there's so much shame and stigma where it just wasn't something we talked about, you know, and it would just come and go. And it was very cyclical, very similar to what my daughter was experiencing with very dark, deep depressions of just not functioning and not reaching the point of not being able to speak. So it sounds terrifying. I can imagine not only as a child with your mother, but for you as a mother to have someone suddenly become unable to speak. Uh, and and then not talking to you about it once they could speak is sort of doubly confusing and frightening. Yes. I mean, if if I can sum up my, I really, I lived in terror. I mean, I was speaking to my therapist a couple of sessions ago about that terror, just living in terror. And did you? you know, ha- the instability and just not having any protection from from my parents. My father was overwhelmed with my mother's um illness and of course you know this this is the stigma we don't talk about it it doesn't exist and i have i have three other siblings and we're all you know just basically really and just trying to survive that's what i remember is all i wanted to do was just survive in the in that house as a kid any which way that i could and did you as siblings while you were trying to survive as children did you talk about it amongst yourselves? I mean, did you wonder together what is going on? We we certainly did because we're all you know we're all close in age and um, we all have very uh, wonderful sense of we have wonderful sense of humor. All all my other three siblings. So 
we we our humor became a mechanism that we used to to deal with the with the with the trauma with the with the fear with the with the severe anxiety and you know all of the chaos and instability of my of my family life and was there a point at which at some point your father sat you down or your mother sat you down and said this is what's going on it has a name this is an illness this explains no, you know, it's so interesting that all I remember as a, as a kid, I must have been eight or nine, my mother's psychiatrist or somebody must have been on the phone, and my father, you know, was on the phone with him or I don't, saying, you've got to take your medication, you know, there's depression. We, we heard snippets and bits and pieces, but no one actually ever sat down and said, listen, your mother has a brain, you know, disorder, a chemical disorder, she has a mental illness, depression. It just wasn't in the '60s, you know, early '70s. We ju- you just didn't you just didn't talk about it. At least not my my family. And now that you are an adult yourself, I mean, how do you understand that? Because if your mother had had tuberculosis or severe diabetes or really almost any other kind of illness, people would have explained to the children what was going on. And so you say, you know, that's the stigma, but. How do you understand? That's a level of stigma and silence that is a sort of crazy-making in itself. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if your parents are still living, Beth. No, actually, um, my mother was 59, and she died of a stroke, and that was in 1989, and my father had passed away in 1998. I see. And did he ever before, did he ever explain to you how he thought about that choice to not explain it to you or talk to you about it? No, you know, it was a conversation that actually n- never occurred. And, and the, I think it was really the lack of closure and my daughter's uh, psychotic episode that really brought me to therapy, which was the point that I could articulate all that I had been carrying and the, bur- the burden of living with someone with mental illness and just the fact that I think that this, this, the reason they didn't speak about it would be to admit, per se, that there was something wrong with them. You know, there was some sort of... Mm. My mother always thought that she could overcome it, that she was somehow not a human being or defective or, or you know, just just completely defective. I see. To so say, I'm... I am depressed or I have the bipolar illness. It would almost make it more real or somehow feel like an acknowledgement of failure. Exactly. Exactly, of extreme failure. And that was my mother's greatest fear, that she would fail as a human being or fail as a mother, having raised, you know, four children and having had her own traumatic life of being adopted. And and this story that I'm just recently uncovering, that her mother actually had some kind of mental illness and possibly my great-grandmother. So both my grandmother and my great-grandmother, there's some connection with uh, mental illness. Her, (laughs) Her biological mother? Is that what yes, you mean? her biological mother. Uh-huh. But so she had a traumatic separation, in other words, also as well as this genetic vulnerability. Yes, yes. I mean, my mother never spoke of her past. What when she did, she would come up to me and you know, in kind of random points, and my, my siblings and myself, we would joke about it. She would say, "You don't know where I came from. I came from nothing." Mm. You know, so you add this to to all of the trauma that we had at home. What do you mean you came from nothing? What are you saying about yourself? She really right. believed that she came from nothing, that she was pretty much a, a nothing. So poignant. Mm. I, I'm struck, too, you know, I, 
your story is one of so many generations of mental illness. I hadn't known about your grandmother and your great-grandmother. Yeah, I hadn't thought of, uh, I ha- it just occurred now in the real time as we were, were speaking that just recently my brother did some genealogy and we, did, we found my mother's biological mother who had given my mother up for adoption, what appears to be the year of my mother's birth in 1929. And then I found a connection that she was actually hospitalized at Northampton they used to call it, I don't know, the insane asylum or whatever, and my, with my, along with my great-grandmother. And it's, 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 you know, you think I've got so much drama in my past, but there's even now even more drama to the story. Yes. And so let me tell, let's segue now to, the, to hearing about your daughter, because, of course, that would be the fourth generation right. where there was some <laughs> illness. And it sounds like in some way that her first episode of illness actually was in some ways, this moment of opportunity for you to start addressing this. But before we even go there, tell me a little bit about your daughter and what happened with her. My daughter is an incredible young woman. She is, uh, I have so much respect and admiration for her. She, her senior year of college, came home. It was this time of year, actually, that she was uh, having a psychotic episode. My husband and I, we, my husband said, you know, something here is, gravely wrong this this is just not this is just not shira and um what happened was that we we actually had to hospitalize her we we had taken her to children's it was the wrong hospital and eventually she ended up at mclean's with what was diagnosed then as kind of a psychotic episode with thinking that this is bipolar but she was clearly delusional she came home she was psychotic and i remember it was Columbus Day weekend, actually, and I remember her coming home, riding on the bus, and then sitting in my bedroom for what was hours, saying to me that she, you know, she she was a prophet and she kind of knew what I was thinking. And I, I sat with her for three hours, just talking to her, just trying to keep get some ground, you know, and trying to breathe and trying to to really just process. Oh my God, is this really happening? Is is this Am I losing my kid? I can't imagine She's the level. lost her mind. Yeah, the level of fear that you must have. The level have of fear, again, took me back to that that young girl, Beth, you know, the young Beth, 6, 7, 12, remembering just, it, it was so eerie because it just took me back to my mother. I could just, even though they're obviously completely different people, I just remembered this, this felt so familiar. It all felt so familiar. In the worst possible way. Exactly. In the worst possible way. You just said it. And yeah. I understand that your daughter uh, has actually since then, uh, you know, done so well. And I, I do want to get that story just briefly in before we talk a little bit more about your own Yes, because recovery. actually I think my story and Shira's story is a story of really recovery and hope. I mean, I always, I'm, I'm an optimistic woman. I always had hope, but... But Shira, in the span of a year, actually took medical leave for a year, went back to school, managed to graduate, and part of her, she went to a a school that was uh, very project-oriented. There were no grades. So her project, she's a poet, musician, so she wrote poetry about her experience, actually, of mental illness. What courage. Yes, yes, yes. What courage, absolutely. She... That was in 2006, and, you know, the medical system we know is not perfect. We've heard other people on your show speak to it. 
she, in 2009, they took her, you know, off of this medication, and she had a second episode where she was really just severely manic in 2009 and had to be hospitalized again. And that's when they decided they put her on lithium and they came, they had a diagnosis of bipolar one. And then how has she done better since she's been on that medicine? Since she was on lithium, yes, she, uh, she has done well. It was really a very traumatic year that 2009 because 2006, you know, she came home and she was with us and we were, you know, it's almost like having a baby bird, you know, flying out of the nest and then coming home so broken, so, so, just so broken, your child, you know, and you're, you're nursing your child back to health. And that was 2006, but 2009, there was a, a disconnect between Shira and the family. For about half a year, she had moved back to Northampton, and she really needed space from us and from just the family just to recover, and we really were not speaking. And it was each day, I just remember, was the hardest. It was, it was, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life was, you know, dealing with this disconnect and just feeling the demise of my own childhood family. But is this, is this? going to happen to my family, my daughter, you know, my son and my husband, what's, what's going to happen? Right. And, and so, it took a lot of work, therapy on her part, medication, therapy on my part, to really be able to speak to and of and for everything that we, everything that we were experiencing. So part of what is so striking to me, Beth, is that here you are, you grew up in this family with this remarkable level of silence. In today's time, it almost seems hard to imagine, but I, but interview after interview in this series has told me the exact same story. Growing up with mental illness, no conversation about it at all. So there's this level of silence that was kind of absolute. And then here you are now talking to me publicly about this on the radio. And I'd love to hear first about how you have gotten to this place where you where you could speak about it so openly. I'd, I'd love to hear two parts, both sort of what were the parts of you that were saying, oh, my God, I can't speak about it, and then what helped you have the courage to speak about it? You know, it's almost like it's been a long time coming. To me today, this is like I want to bust out into the blues, you know, or a gospel <laughs> choir and kind of sing hallelujah. I, I've always kind of been a tell-it-like-it-is kind of gal and I just remember when my parents I would say to them you know something here is radically wrong mom is really depressed you know I, I remember speaking to it but not having an audience or anyone who would uh, respond actually so so I took out my guitar and I started writing songs and I sang actually mm. and singing hold up in my room was what really gave me the ability to express all the fear, all the terror, everything that was inside. And, and I, I guess I really just built up that resilient muscle, if you will, call it whatever it is, to be able with Shira, just being a different generation, different times, to say, you know what, this is what we're dealing with. You know, you have bipolar, and we're going to talk about this. We're, we're going we're gonna to speak the truth, your truth, my truth. I get goosebumps hearing you. Without any censorship. And did she welcome that? Did she find that hard to bear? How did that go? You know, after after she was in, you know, in therapy and she was taking her lithium and just doing her therapeutic work about half a year 
from, let's say, October 2009 to May, where we really kind of had this disconnect, in May, we, I, I drove out to see her in Northampton, and that's when we slowly started to just really be able to talk about everything that had happened. And it all happens, you know, when someone has this illness, you know, it, everything's happened at the speed of light so quickly. Yes. You know, you say things, you react, you do things that you, the, the, the person who's ill and the person, me, myself, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're human. So, so right. things, intense, emotional things are said and done, and we can't always take back what we've said or what we've done, but we can certainly do that when we're ready and when we can hear one another and be able to speak each of us on our own, our own truths. And it was a process, and it was not an easy process, but it was a, it was a process, and I'm, I'm really grateful that, uh, that I was in therapy at the time because certainly this internal family systems therapy has helped me come to terms with having a daughter now who, who has this. So, so I'd love to hear more about that. And I know, you know, I know that internal family systems is a therapy that helps people connect with the different parts of themselves. There are different kind of protective parts, ultimately with the goal of connecting with the, the very wounded parts inside. But I'd love to hear from you about how, how has therapy helped you? What, what have been the issues that have, you've most had to struggle with around this? You know, I just, I, the internal family systems model is just such a brilliant model that it looks at you as parts, your, you know, your day-to-day manager parts and your protectors and then your wounded, exiled parts. And it's just, you, 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 you meet so many of your parts in therapy, the process, and it's, it's really making friends with all of you and just realizing, wow, there are so many of you. And for me, it was really, it's helped me in the sense that I'm much better able to connect with these young parts, these exiled, wounded parts, if you will, who, who really suffered the trauma in my, with my mother and my family and um, gain, talk to these parts, talk to this Beth that was just uh, at 16, Moved to actually move to Israel. I moved to Israel when I was 16. I was on my own. I, I found a way out of my, out of my family. I don't want to call it a tragedy, but but I found a way out to save myself. And I, when I was 16, I found a boarding school in Israel, and I packed up and I, and I moved because two of my older sisters were already out of the house, and I was like, I got to get out of here because something. My system was saying something is going to really go wrong here. So you were an incredibly resourceful teenager in, yes, in taking care team. of yourself. Yes. yes, and very self-reliant, it sounds like. Yes. I mean, I, I had to be. I mean, when you have a parent who's mentally ill or any, you, you, you just, you, you, yeah. I mean, I was basically my own parent. I, I discovered in internal family systems therapy that I have a, a reporter part, this part of me that would kind of would report my experience, you know, in therapy as a way of trying to get distance from it or not feel the, 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 the terrifying moments or, or the trauma or the pain. She would just kind of like a sportscaster report to me and report to my therapist, actually. We talked about this. And I was it was an aha moment. Whoa! So this part, 
she, while she's a reporter and she's, she's really wants to help me, she wants to save me. That was her way of parenting me and saving me from all of the confusion, all of the instability, all of the trauma, all of the fear through from my, you know, from being a little girl up through until, you know, until I left my house, basically. <laughs> so, so, and you weren't even really aware you were even doing it. Exactly. And that's where this internal family systems model was. I was able to discover all these parts of myself in a non-pathological and judgmental uh, approach and be, you know, it's, you are your own therapist with this therapy. That's, that's the beauty of it. But my therapist has been hugely instrumental in my, my healing process. It's wonderful to hear that. I want to hear a little bit more, too, about singing, because I know you're studying voice, and it sounds like you would write songs and sing, too, when things got really bad. Tell me a little bit about how music has helped you. Yeah, I, I, I think my whole, I look back and my whole life, and I can close my eyes, and I can see myself, you know, listening to the, <laughs> the, the, the folk songs and knowing that I, I could, as a kid, sing and, and getting my first guitar and just when things were so bad, so traumatic, and if my mother, let's say, was in the hospital or just really in a more much more depressive place where she'd be lying on the, the chaise lounge, you know, and just really checked out, clearly checked out, I, I had my guitar, I had my voice, I had my music. I could go to it. It was it was the greatest source of strength and comfort that I that I had. And thank God that I had that and I and I still have that. It's very moving. When you're studying voice, what, what aspect of voice are you studying? Is there a particular genre of music? You know, it's really funny, but I'm gonna say this. I, I had a dream of actually being being kind of a singer and stuff and and I and I know that a lot of my pain has been around kind of not self-actualizing or not going off to conservatory as a young kid having had all the the burdens and family you know family trauma and illness that that really prevented me in the sense from kind of stunted my emotional intellectual if you will growth and so this 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 uh, certificate program at the conservatory is classically based, and yet, you know, there I was, kind of like the bluesy type of folk folk singer. But the classical music that I'm singing, some of these arias talk about, you know, grief, loss, death, betrayal. They're written by. I'm singing many Handel arias that Handel had bipolar disorder. You know, so in a way, it's it's just very powerful to be singing a song that's been written by a composer who he himself had this illness, and it's capturing the full essence of what it means to be human. That's that's what singing for me is, and it's what it means to be human, being able to express the the full range, all the colors, from the darkest emotions to the joys. But primarily, my, my singing has really focused on a lot of very sad and dark songs, actually. I'm struck as so many people who have intense interactions with people with bipolar disorder become almost afraid or phobic of strong emotion. And it seems to me that you've found a way, both through your therapy and through your music, almost to have this container to find a way to hold such intense and maybe dark emotion in a way that feels really safe and ultimately very healing. Yes, because when you say we were talking about voice, you know, 
I, I, I had no voice in my family. I, I had no voice. And my siblings, I think, I think they would say the same. They, we didn't have a voice. We were not seen. We were not heard. <laughs> you know? And now for me to be, you know, the metaphor of just using music and art as a, as a, as a modality to heal is hugely powerful. Just to open my mouth, you know, opera, they say, is this beautiful scream, but just to all the crying, all the screaming, everything that I blocked, you know, because I just had these very tough, striving, strong parts of me that were like saying, I'm going to get out of here, you know, I'll, I'll go off to a, a foreign country, that's it, I'll, I'll take myself as far away as I can, you know, who just armored and blocked all of this, all of the times I just wanted to cry, and that it was just right at the it was just right at the edge of my throat, you know, and singing makes you, you're vulnerable. It was just right there. You know when you have a cold or a sore throat and you just can can barely swallow, can barely mm-hmm. speak? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what it felt like. But it was a huge release for me. So moving. One day I would love to go to one of your concerts. But... <laughs> <laughs> we the... have them, actually. More than, I, more than I care to participate in. I'm joking, but so... we have yeah. We're going to have to stop, but I wonder, couldn't you just tell me, when is your next concert in case someone would like to go hear you? There's a chamber music concert on January 19th, and I think our recital is January 2nd, is Saturday. The voice department at the conservatory has their uh, the continuing ed program, a wonderful recital with so many talented singers. It's just That's a, wonderful. So that's the New England Conservatory, January right. 2nd. Beth Ehrlichman, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Thank you so much. After the show aired, Beth Ehrlichman sent me a copy of a song that she had recently recorded. It's her cover of John Dowland's song, Flow My Tears, and I wanted to include it here because it felt so important to have her voice as part of this interview. That was Beth Ehrlichman singing John Dallin's Flow My Tears. This is Dr. Anne. I've been speaking to Beth Ehrlichman about her experience with self-care and a family with several generations of mental illness. 
If you'd like to listen to the show in its entirety, please go to the website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can also subscribe there to get weekly announcements of the show. You can download the show from iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. My thanks tonight for Jen Hod- to Jen Hodson for the sound and Maurice Leonard for the music. Coming up next is The Watchdog.